Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. past several years, there's been a... Uh, argument or a debate that's been going on in the church, uh, in Christianity, about what is the mission of the church? Or, or put it another way, why is the church here? Why did God create the church? Maybe you're new to this conversation. It's not something that you have been exposed to uh, all that often in the past. Uh, on the one hand, on one side, you have those who say the purpose of the church, the mission of the church is basically just to wait it out. It's just wait until Jesus returns to keep yourself pure from the world, just bunker, hunker down in your own little bunker and, and try to uh, remain unstained from the world. So that's one side of this debate. The other side says, no, the, the purpose of the church, the mission of the church is to help a broken world. Jesus himself says in the Gospel of Luke that, behold, I come to bring good news to the poor. And the follow-up question to that is, well, what is good news to someone who is poor? Well, it means that they have food to eat, that they reach economic sustainability. This side of the argument says that the purpose, the mission of the church is to extend justice to those who have not experienced. What is the mission of the church? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we continue our work through uh, this series, this three-week mini-series called Compelled by Grace. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the mission of Jesus and how, what Jesus did, what his purpose was as he walked the earth. And from there, we're going to try to see what our mission is as well. Last week, if you were with us, we worked our way through 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And we saw in these verses that the love that God has for us is just absolutely incredible. In fact, this love is so great for us that it compels us to love others our own. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 14 and 15 says this, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he has died so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for him who for their sake died and was raised. What is the purpose that, that, that Paul is getting at in those verses? He's saying that the purpose of us being compelled to love is to live for him who for our sake died and was raised. This is the reason that God does all that he does. This is really the reason that Peter, or excuse me, Paul does all that he has done as well as the response to the great love that God has shown him. He says that this love of Christ motivates him to live for God. And as we open, or as we wrestle through what this really looks like, we begin to wonder, how do we effectively do this? How do we effectively live for him who for our sake died and was raised? This is a vitally important question for us to answer, and it really ties into the question that we started with, this debate that we started with this morning, talking about the mission of the church. What is the mission of the church? What does it mean for us to live for him who for our sake died and was raised? Why is this a vitally important question? I think it's vitally important for us because if we are focused on the wrong thing, or if we think that to live for him 
means something, but it actually means something completely different, then we're going to spend our entire lives seeking after the wrong thing. So, for example, if the focus of the church, the purpose of the church is to seek out injustice and to fix it. If that's the purpose of the church and we spend our entire lives trying to remain unstained from the world, not really engaging the world, when we get to the end of our lives, we're going to be severely disappointed because we were seeking after the wrong thing. On the flip side, if the purpose of the church is to remain unstained from the world and we spend our entire lives focused on fixing injustice when we see it, when we get to the end of our lives, we're going to be severely disappointed by what we experienced. As we work our way through this question this morning, what does it mean? Uh, what is the purpose of the church? We're going to focus on a text that looks at Jesus' own mission. As we begin to look at Jesus' own mission, as we begin to understand his mission, we will begin to understand our own. I'm going to share with you right off the bat what my conviction is about what Scripture clearly teaches us the mission of the church is, and that is this. The mission of the church is to reach and save the lost. The mission of the church is not primarily to seek justice for those who have experienced injustice, although that is a good thing. The mission of the church is not primarily to protect ourselves, to remain unstained from the world, although that is an important thing. The primary mission, the purpose of the church is to reach and save the lost. And as we wrestle through what this means, we're going to look at Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. If you have a Bible, I invite you to, uh, to, to follow along as I read aloud here. And this is a story where Jesus shares about his own mission. It's a story that I'm sure many of you are familiar with, uh, but please follow along, starting in verse 27. It says this, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in a tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Here in these verses, Jesus tells us what his mission is. Verse 37, or 32. I have not come to call righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is what Jesus' mission in his life is, to call those who are far from God to return to God, to repent from their sins and come back to God. And this is honestly why religious leaders got such a big fuss over what Jesus did with his lives. This is why they were so uh, taken aback by how much time Jesus spent with the social outcasts of their day. Look at the context of where this takes place. This is early in Jesus' ministry. It's right after he has called his first disciples, uh, a passage that we're probably familiar with, uh, with James, John, Peter, and Andrew. Right after that, Jesus heals a man who is paralyzed when his friends rip open the roof to this house and drop him down in front of them. And he begins to ruffle, uh, ruffle some feathers when he heals this paralytic man because of the way he decides to declare that this man is healed. He says, behold, your, son, or your sins are forgiven. And every Everyone begins to get a little uh, confused by that. And they're saying, Jesus, why on earth are you saying that? And Jesus says, which is easier for me? To just say, take up your bed and walk? Or 
your sins are forgiven so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. And this begins a process with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, begin to really be uh, opposed to Jesus and the way he is doing things in his life. They are opposed to the people he is spending time with to the point where eventually, as we're going to study in a couple of weeks, it leads to Jesus' own death. All because of the plan of God. After he's called these first four disciples, after he's healed this man, we come to this passage where he calls Levi to follow him. And this is a pretty standard passage. It's the same response to Jesus' calling that we see in the previous passage. That Jesus extends an invitation to follow me. And just like the four disciples did earlier, Levi follows immediately. Why is that significant? Why is it significant that Levi himself just follows Jesus instantly? Well, it's because Levi is a tax collector. Now, many of us might be familiar with the social reputation of tax collectors, uh, but I just want to go through that again real briefly. In the first century, uh, tax collectors were scum, to put it bluntly. The entire Roman Empire paid taxes, but there wasn't a IRS, there wasn't a central bank. And so what Rome did is they, they would actually hire out people to raise taxes for them, to collect taxes for them. And so if you wanted to become a tax collector, what you would do is you would go ahead and put in a bid to the Roman Empire. You would say, you know what, I'm going to collect uh, $10,000 for you this year. Uh, in this area. And the person who says, you know, another person says 12,000, another says 15,000. Whoever places the highest bid is the person who gets to raise, uh, who gets to collect taxes. That's how taxes worked in the first century Roman Empire. It's not exactly the most encouraging way to do things. And so these people would just set arbitrary uh, amounts of taxes that needed to be paid. But on top of that, then they would, they would raise the taxes even more and they would just keep the leftovers. So let's say that I place a bid in for uh, $10,000 is how much I'm going to uh, tax people that I'm going to give to the Roman Empire. And I win the bid. So I have to raise $10,000 that I send to the Roman Empire. But if I get $20,000 in taxes, then I just get to keep that extra $10,000. That's the way the Roman Empire worked in their tax systems. As you can probably guess, people didn't really care for this approach to doing taxes. As you can probably guess, people were a little upset. Primarily in Judea, people hated tax collectors for two reasons. First, they were seen as traitors. These were people who had left behind their own brothers and sisters, who extorted their brothers and sisters for the sake of Rome the oppressive empire that ruled over them. And second, these are people who took advantage of them. These are people who made their own profit off of the expense of other people. These were vile, disgusting people who took advantage of others for their own gain. This is like the mob in the 1920s and 1930s. Or another modern day example, this is like an Illinois politician. Uh, I, the other day, a couple of weeks ago, I had the chance to talk to some pastors that uh, were in the Chicagoland area, and they told me that four out of their last seven governors has spent time in federal prison. Um, that's the kind of people that we're talking about right here. Uh, just vile, disgusting scum. And it makes you begin to sympathize a little bit with the Pharisees. 
Why on earth is Jesus spending time with these kind of people? Why is he spending time with these traitors? These people who are taking advantage of the poor, of the people who barely can make by, get by in their own community so that someone else thousands of miles away can get rich. The Pharisees, honestly, have a pretty proper understanding of the tax collectors. Why would Jesus... A good Jewish teacher. Why would he be spending time with these tax collectors? Well, Levi spent a response to Jesus' call to follow me uh, by doing just that. He decides to follow Jesus. He drops everything that he has, everything that he is doing, and he follows Jesus. And in the first century, there was this, this ritual of if you have been honored by someone, you would try to show honor back to that same person. And so Levi, after being honored by Jesus, by being asked to be his disciple, decides to show honor back to Jesus by throwing him a great party. It was a pretty standard way of doing things, to, to throw a party in someone's honor. And so that's what Levi is doing. He's, he's throwing a party for Jesus and says, all right, Jesus, you've shown me honor. Now I want to show you honor by having this great party for you. And of course, a party isn't a party without lots of people. But there's only one problem. The only people that Levi knows are people who are just like him. More tax collectors, more sinners, more people that are vile, disgusting. If Jesus was a good Pharisee, he would have declined the invitation. If Jesus was a good Pharisee, he would have condemned Levi and his friends. Honestly, if Jesus was a good Pharisee, he wouldn't be anywhere near Levi in the first place. And that's what makes his response so surprising here. Not only that he calls Levi to follow him, but that he spends time with Levi and his friends afterwards. Notice that he doesn't just talk with them. He doesn't just, you know, stop by the party for a few minutes, grab a couple appetizers and then leave. He eats with them. He eats with these people. And this was a very big deal in the first century. It was unthinkable for anyone who was a good Pharisee or a good Jew even to eat with someone who was unclean or impure. And the tax collectors were the epitome of those who were unclean and impure. The Pharisees, in in fact, went so far that they would refuse to eat with anyone who wasn't a Pharisee. Which honestly shows a bit of their hypocrisy here. That they're at this party. They're not there to eat with the people. They're just there to keep tabs on Jesus. Eating with someone in the first century was more than just a sign of friendship. It was a sign of union. By eating with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus is uniting with them. He's associating himself with these people, with tax collectors, with sinners, with the scum of the earth. In the first century, people believed that sinfulness was contagious. You didn't want to be around people who are sinful because you might catch it. And you might become sinful yourself. Every single thing that Jesus is doing here at this party is unthinkable. So why is Jesus doing this? Why is Jesus spending time with tax collectors and sinners? This is the question that the Pharisees are wrestling through themselves. And it ultimately comes down to the fact that they are confused by Jesus' mission. Why is Jesus eating with Levi? Why is Jesus eating with his friends? 
if Jesus' mission on earth is just simply to heal other people, then he wouldn't need to be next to Levi. He wouldn't need to be around tax collectors. There are plenty of people who are at least marginally religious that Jesus could go and heal, that needed healing. If Jesus' mission was to bring justice, then the last place that Jesus would be found would be hanging out with people who are making a lot of money based off of injustice. If Jesus' mission was to teach, then Jesus wouldn't need to be surrounded by tax collectors and sinners. Jesus could be somewhere else because everywhere he went, we see in the Gospels, there was a large crowd that gathered to follow him, to listen to his teaching. So why is Jesus with these men? Why is Jesus surrounded by these people? It's because he's bringing hope. He's bringing grace. He's bringing peace to a people who are in love with the world. It's because he's bringing purpose for people who have wasted their lives. That's why Jesus associates with Levi and his friends. Because of verse 32. He came not for the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. Jesus came to earth for people like Levi. That's what makes the the demands of the Pharisees so ridiculous. The demands of the Pharisees are straight up ridiculous because they want Jesus to be far away from where he is needed most. It's like asking a doctor to never see someone who is sick. It's like asking a farmer to never go out into the fields. Jesus and his mission means that Jesus will be surrounded by tax collectors and sinners. It means that Jesus will be among sinners. And once we understand that, Once we understand this mission of Jesus, then we can begin to understand our own mission as a church. Earlier I mentioned uh, that there's a big debate going over the mission of the church uh, in Christianity today. And I want to share just a little bit of my own story with this. I did my undergraduate work at Northwestern College in Orange City. Uh, Northwestern is a Christian school, and like a lot of Christian colleges today, it is really wrestling through this question, and it's really coming from a, a place of trying to be relevant in the world. There's a desire to be relevant to the world as a whole, to try to make a difference in the lives of those that they are surrounded by. And so there was one time while I was a senior at Northwestern, It was a a chapel service my spring semester, and there was a a chapel speaker who was coming in and was sharing things that we should be willing to live and die for. And so this chapel speaker says, well, we should be willing to live and to die for feeding the poor, for uh, giving housing to the homeless, for fighting off sex trafficking. And it lists about seven or eight different things, all of them very good things, notable, noble causes to devote our lives to. But as they shared, cause after cause, I remember thinking to myself, okay, they're, they're surely going to mention the gospel sometime. And they share another thing, and the gospel goes without being mentioned. And I begin to get madder and madder and madder to the point where I... Um, 
got myself into a little bit of trouble. Um, I wrote, I was so upset that the gospel hadn't been mentioned in this chapel service as something that we should be willing to live for, that we should be willing to die for, that I actually wrote uh, in my anger, and this is probably not good, uh, in, my, in my anger I wrote a, an editorial to the paper, um, and thankfully one of my friends actually works for the paper and got a hold of it and decided not to run it uh, before it got published. But somehow the campus ministry team at Northwestern actually got a hold of this article, and it got passed around the, the entire group there that I was really, really, really upset that the gospel or the, the mission of the church, the mission of Jesus right here, that calling sinners to repentance hadn't been mentioned as something that we should be willing to live for or die for with our lives. And I actually, I remember having a conversation with a man who's about 30 years my senior, and he said, he, he vehemently disagreed with me. And he said, Jordan, I, I think you're wrong. I think sometimes the gospel means just giving someone a loaf of bread who is hungry. Is that true? Is the mission of the church, is the gospel, is the good news, sometimes just feeding the hungry? That's not what Jesus says here. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 20, a passage that talks about the mission, the purpose of the church, says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus's mission was to die for sins, to bring sinners to repentance. And the mission of the church is to proclaim this good news. To make, a, that Christ has died to make a way for sinners to be brought into relationship with God once more. The mission of the church is to proclaim this, calling all sinners to repentance. And many of us would probably say, well, that makes sense. You know, that's, that's kind of what I've heard all of my life. That's what the church exists for. And most of us would probably agree with that. In other contexts, there would be a large debate. I think Jesus' mission is the same, or the church's mission is the same as Jesus' mission, to call sinners to repentance. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that compassion ministries are wrong. I am so thankful for the Dream Center and all the work that it does here in this community as a visible, tangible uh, showing of the hands and feet of Jesus. But the primary purpose of the church is to call sinners to repentance. So I have a, a, a question for you. If that's the mission of the church, if that's the purpose of the church, And it makes sense to follow the example that Jesus shows here uh, in Luke chapter 5, to be among tax collectors and sinners. So here's my question. How many tax collectors and sinners do we know? How many tax collectors and sinners do you know? If you were to throw a party for Jesus right now, how many of the people that you invited would be Christians who already know Jesus? Verse people like the ones Levi invited. 
How many tax collectors and sinners do you know? How many people would you be able to invite who are desperate to know Jesus? That, that you are desperate to introduce them to Jesus. Research shows that the longer that we are Christians, the fewer and fewer non-Christian friends that we have. And it kind of makes sense. As your affections change, as your desires change, you want to spend a little bit more time with those who have the same affections, the same desires as you. It makes complete, perfect sense. But one of the dangers of that is that if we threw a party, we wouldn't invite anyone that would upset Pharisees. We wouldn't invite anyone that would ruffle the feathers of the religious elite. In order to reach the lost, we have to know the lost. And for many of us, that's a problem. For many of us, that is a struggle. I'm going to be honest, that's, that's a struggle of mine. I mentioned earlier that I went to Northwestern College, which is a Christian college. And at least on the outside, I was surrounded by people who, who at least claimed to be Christians. I lived on campus among Christians. If you've ever been to Orange City, you know that it is basically, um, they, they claim to be Christendom on earth, um, heaven on earth. Um, just all of the Dutch people over there, they love, love doing that. Right after that, I, I moved to Trinity uh, in Chicago, which, you know, there are a lot more people in Chicago. But I lived on campus of a seminary for two years. I worked at a church. you have any idea how hard it is to get to know non-Christians when every waking moment of your life is spent surrounded by Christians? Moving here, this has been one of the biggest challenges that has faced me. To resist the temptation of just spending all of my time with Christians. As a pastor, I could spend every waking moment of my life not talking with or rubbing shoulders with a non-Christian. It'd be really, really easy for me to do. I could spend all of my time just being surrounded by you guys. But that's not what Jesus calls us to do. That's not what Luke chapter 5 is talking about. How can someone who is a doctor not be surrounded by sick people? And I have to ask myself, if Jesus were to ask me to throw a party, or if Jesus called me to follow him, which he did, and I were to throw a party for my friends, how many people would I invite that would make Pharisees mad with me? This is what we call being missional. Another way of referring to the fact that each and every one of us is a missionary. God has called each and every one of us who is a Christian to be a missionary. No exceptions. The calling to be a Christian is a calling to be a missionary. Now, there are some who are called into vocational uh, ministry as missionaries. There are some people who are called to be international missionaries. But have you ever thought that God, when he called you to follow him, called you to be a missionary here in Spencer and Clay County and in Northwest Iowa, that you are a missionary, that this room is filled with missionaries? of people who have been called by God to seek and save the lost. Let me be honest, that can be a little bit intimidating for us. It can be a little bit intimidating to think of ourselves as missionaries. 
It sets the bar a little bit higher than we are used to. Now, how do we do this? How do we become missionaries here in Northwest Iowa? Well, that's, that's what we're going to spend the last few minutes here talking about. Some really just practical, tangible examples. If you notice, there are a ton of blanks here. And we're going to try to fire through all of these blanks, talking about the different ways that we can be missionaries in our community. These are tips for living on mission, being missional here in Spencer at the hospital, at the banks, at the, in the fields, when we're staying at home, wherever God has called us, that we would be missionaries for God. So how do we do this? Well, first, get over dualism. Get over dualism. A lot of us have a tendency to think of the world in two different spheres. We have our church sphere that takes care of Sunday, and Wednesday nights, and then we have the rest of our lives, Monday through Saturday, whatever the case is. We spend most of our times in the secular sphere, not focused all that much time in, uh, on the church sphere. But these two spheres are, are foreign to the Bible. The Bible never talks about the fact that we have two different lives that we are supposed to live. And the first thing that we have to do for us to be missionaries is to recognize that there aren't two different spheres for us. That there is one sphere of our lives. That we get rid of this dualistic understanding of our lives and of the world. And we'll be on our way to becoming missionaries in our community. So get over dualism. Second thing, embrace your passions. If your goal is to get to know non-Christians, to be able to speak into their lives, one of the easiest ways to do this is to embrace your passions. What is it that you are passionate about? Are you passionate about basketball? Are you passionate about board games, about painting? What passions did God create your children with? Maybe they love soccer or band or 4-H or drama. Have you ever thought of those passions as gifts from God for you to steward for his kingdom? That they are gifts given to you by God for you to use for the sake of the gospel. Let me use an example. Let's say you're passionate about basketball. If you love basketball, you love playing basketball, you have a wonderful opportunity every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning from to, to spend time with 10 to 12 other guys, many of them who don't know Jesus, that you can get to know. You already have something in common with them. You both love basketball. It can lead to opportunities for you to be able to become friends with them. Can you ever ask for a better opportunity to get to know someone? Or maybe your son is uh, passionate about Boy Scouts and they want you to volunteer to lead Let's look at the advantages of you volunteering to to lead your son or help out with your son's Boy Scout troop. On the one hand, you get to spend quality time with your son. That's great. Not only that, but you get to invest in the lives of other boys. You get to get to know other parents, many of them who might not be Christians. All because of your son's passion. All because of your passions. Embrace your passions. Another thing to do is when you're at work, work. When you are working, work. We have a wonderful opportunity 
in the spheres of employment that we are in to be missionaries. Many of us here work 40 hours or more a week, and we're, most of that time is spent around people who are non-Christians. If you do the math, that means that you're spending over 10,000 hours a year surrounded by people who don't know Jesus. You might be wondering, well, how, do I, how am I supposed to be a missionary in that sphere? Well, here are a couple ideas. First of all, never eat alone. If you're at work and you, it's time for you to eat, don't eat at your desk. Don't continue working while you are eating. Go to the break room. Eat with your coworkers. Eat with your employees. Get to know them. Food can be a very powerful way to get to know someone. Never eat alone. Another thing to do, maybe bring breakfast once a month. Again, food can be extremely powerful. It's the quickest way to my heart. Um, it's probably the quickest way to many people's hearts. Bring breakfast once a, once a month, whether it's donuts or uh, juice or donut holes like we always have here, or if it's breakfast burritos or whatever. If, if breakfast really isn't your thing, then maybe organize a lunch potluck once a month. The food will be much better than what people typically eat. It'll be a great opportunity to fellowship with one another. Another opportunity or, or option is to just encourage others while you're at work. Be a voice of encouragement while you are at work. Whether that means you write notes that are, you know, just two or three sentence long, sentences long and place them on people's desk, or whether you are vocalize every time someone does something for you, you share thank you to them. Whatever the case is, make sure that you are not a voice of complaining, a voice of gossip, but rather be a voice of thanksgiving and encouragement. And one final other area, get to know the cleaning staff, wherever you are working. A wonderful opportunity to, to speak into the lives, to show that you care about those who are around you. Get to know the cleaning staff. Those are a few things, but they're certainly not all. The important thing is, as we work in our jobs, be creative. Be creative. Use your passions that God has created, with, created you with as a way to reach out to your coworkers. As a way to be able to speak life into their lives, to walk alongside of them. When you're at work, work. Another area, be a good neighbor. Be a good neighbor. We have great opportunities when we live in neighborhoods, whether our neighbors are two miles away or whether they're 20 feet away. God has given us neighbors as a wonderful opportunity. This past week, as I was preparing for this uh, text, I actually did a little bit of research on the demise of the American front porch. It was a fascinating topic. Just 60, 70 years ago, everyone in America seemingly had a front porch. People would spend hot summer nights out on their front porch. They'd watch their kids play in the front yard, and people would get to know their neighbors because of that. But about half a century ago, there were two major technological changes that killed the front porch and honestly killed community here in America. First one was air conditioning. There's no longer a need to be outside to be cool on a hot summer evening. It was actually nicer to be inside. And not only that, but there was the television. You no longer had to watch your kids to be entertained. You could be entertained by whatever you wanted on TV. And so we quickly stopped trying to be a part of a community out there because we were content with just being our own little community, being entertained, being comfortable in our own houses. And this has led to rapid deterioration of community here in the United States. Now, how can we remedy this? 
How is it that we can uh, fix this issue in our own lives? Because I'm going to be honest, getting to know neighbors can be sometimes, it can, it can be difficult. Sometimes the only thing we have in, in common with our neighbors is the street that we live on. So how are some, what are some ways that we can get to know our neighbors? What are some ways that we can use the gift of neighborhoods as missionaries? Well, first, play in your front yard. Play in your front yard with your kids. Instead of playing in the backyard, go ahead and just play in the front yard. Now, watch for traffic, of course, but this is a wonderful opportunity to be outside, get to know the neighborhood kids. Another way is maybe to grow a garden. If you like gardening, grow a garden, and then when you have extra produce, go ahead and share that extra produce with your neighbors. It's a way to bless them with some good food, but also as a way to get to know them. Another op- or idea, have a game night. If you enjoy playing ladder golf or cornhole, or uh, if you like just doing like um, tailgate kind of games, how about do that some night out on your front yard? Invite the neighborhood to come and join you. You might be saying, well, I don't really want to uh, initiate that. Well, if you look at Jesus in Luke chapter 5, Jesus is the one who initiated things with Levi. God calls us to be the initiator in these situations. And another option is have a summer barbecue. If you like grilling food, and who doesn't, throw a barbecue. Have everyone bring their own meat. You throw it on the grill and just have a time of fellowship. Spend time getting to know your neighbors. Again, be creative. That's not the only, those aren't the only things that you can do. Let your passions govern your interactions with your neighbors. Another thing, be in the community. Be in the community here in Spencer. This is important, especially in a rural community. Uh, it can be kind of difficult if you are a transplant into the community to work your way into it. So a couple options here. If you work at home, and some of us do here, um, try to work publicly if you have the opportunity. Instead of working from your home office, work publicly when you have the chance. This is about a year and a half ago I made this commitment. I have an office at my house. Um, well, I no longer do, but uh, had an office at my home and made a decision after spending so much time in that home office that I was going to start working at the Bear just a couple times a week as an intentional way to get to know other people, to get to know people that I didn't know before. It's a wonderful opportunity to get to know other people when you work public, publicly. Another thing, join what's already going on. Join what's already happening here in Spencer. If you are passionate about art, don't take the time and the energy to create an art commission. Go to art, uh, art, Arts on Grand and join what they're already doing. A couple reasons. First of all, you'll get to know some people that you wouldn't normally get to know. Some people that might not walk into the church. Get to know some non-Christians. And logistically... You don't have to organize it. That's a big, big time-consuming factor. You could spend the time that you would have had to use organizing it to build relationships with other people. Join what's already going on. Another thing, go on prayer walks here in Spencer. If you're walking around your community, if you're walking around your neighborhood, just, just pray as you're on a walk. It doesn't have to be anything serious. It doesn't have to be any sort of big deal. And when you come across a neighbor, ask them how you can pray for them, and then just pray 
and then keep walking. Do the same thing on Grand Avenue. Wonderful opportunity to just get to know people in our community. Another thing, participate in story or participate in city events. This means story time at the library, family fest, flag fest, the Clay County Fair. The, I, I subscribe to iShop Spencer, which is this uh, little e-newsletter that talks about uh, basically all the deals that are going on in Spencer. And I never look at the deals. I only look at it. I only subscribe to it for the community calendar, just so I know what's going on here in Spencer as a way to be involved and to participate in city events. Be involved. Be in the community. Now, that's a lot to take in. That's a lot that I just threw out there that I kind of just gave you and said, this is what it means to be missional here in Spencer. There are thousands of ways for us to be missional. One of the coolest things that I heard was this church in a large urban area that their life groups all decided to adopt one specific sports team or school activity. And they dedicated themselves to blessing that school activity. So this one life group, they decided to adopt the high school football team. This meant that they uh, provided food for the students before their games. It meant that they washed all of their laundry. It meant that they wrote encouraging cards to all of the students. All as a way to bless those people, to get involved in the lives of those in the community. It's a lot you can do. And if you look at this and say, well, that's so much that I have to add to my already busy plate. And you say, well, that, that's just not possible for me. So instead of thinking of it that way, let's, let's put it this way. Don't add missional to your schedule. Make your existing schedule missional. Don't add missional to your schedule. Make your existing schedule missional. If you already work 40 to 50 hours a week, what if you switch from just thinking of missional being something that you have to do in addition to those 40 hours, instead saying, how can I be missional during those 40 hours? If you are already going to your children's activities, why not make the switch and say, how can I be missional? How can I be a missionary at these activities? If you're already playing with your kids in the backyard, why not just move to the front yard? It's a way to be missional. A few small tweaks with our lives can make us effective missionaries in our community to be involved in the lives of those who are around us. And that's what it means to be a missionary. That's all it means, to be focused on others, to be focused on getting to know other people that we might one day be able to share the good news with them. That's really what this text is telling us, what this uh, focus of this message is, that God created us a specific way to reach specific people. God created each of us different. God created us each with different gifts that no one else has, different passions, different talents, different careers, different neighbors, to reach people that no one else can reach. God created you a specific way to reach a specific people. That's what happens in Luke chapter 5. Jesus' meal with Levi, with tax collectors and sinners, happens because of Levi. Because Levi was willing to invite Jesus to have a meal with them. But there's another story in the Gospel of Luke that talks about Jesus meeting with and eating with a tax collector. And that's found in Luke chapter 19. In Luke 19, we have the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, but he was the chief tax collector. People like Levi would work for him. 
If there was a Jewish mob, then Zacchaeus would be like the Don. He would be the boss. He would be the guy who's in charge. And yet Jesus chooses to eat with him. You look, and there's this fascinating contrast between Luke chapter 18 and Luke chapter 19. In Luke chapter 18, we have the story of a rich young man who does all he can to follow the Ten Commandments and eventually denies and rejects God. And on the other hand, you have Zacchaeus, this rich, wealthy scumbag who Jesus decides to have a meal with. And he becomes a Christian. Why did Zacchaeus come to faith? Because Jesus ate with him. That's it. Jesus ate with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus would never have entered a church. And there are thousands of people who surround us here in Spencer who would never enter into a church. And yet, just like Zacchaeus, they can come to faith because of food, because we're willing to eat with them, because of our passions, because we're willing to spend time with them, to develop those kinds of relationships with them. God can use us in the same way that he used Levi, that he used uh, Jesus to reach Zacchaeus in the first century. So ask yourself, well, who is God calling me to be a missionary to? Who is God calling me to be a missionary to? And how is God calling me to be a missionary? Is God calling me to be a missionary through food? One of the exciting things that I'm excited that our church is going to be starting up here uh, soon, actually, right away, um, is something called Luke 5 Meals. And this is an opportunity um, for you to spend time with your non-Christian friends out there. Let's say you have some coworkers who don't know Jesus and you want to get to know them. You want to have them over for a meal. But reality is food is expensive. One thing that's holding you back is that you can't pay for it. You can't make that extra commitment. So what our church has decided to do is if you have one of these Luke 5 meals, if you decide to invite people who don't know Jesus over to your house, just like Levi did, and you take your receipt and you submit it to the church with a little bit of an application, basically explaining, you know, what you did, um, what, what was the purpose of this Luke 5 meal, then the church will completely reimburse you for your meal. This is a way of encouraging us to be involved in the lives of those who are around us. The little, uh, the details of that can be found on our website um, in a few days here. But God, uh, I I want to make sure that we have all the opportunities that we can to be missionaries in our community. That God has created us in a specific way. That God has created each and every one of us with the opportunity to reach a different group of people. That was Jesus' mission. That's our mission. That we are compelled by the love of Christ to love those who are around us. Who is Jesus calling you to be a missionary to? How is Jesus calling you to be a missionary? As you wrestle with those questions, remember that it is the love that Christ has for us. That's the love that Christ has for others that compels us to love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the great love that you've shown us. And from that great love, we are able to love others. I pray that you would help us to do so. Help us to think of ways that we can be involved in the lives of those who are around us. 
God, you are so good. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.